the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, inertialess objects seen flitting about nuclear carriers on new Navy UFO videos turn out to be time-traveling transhuman imps from uptime playing on their big brother's Ataris. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We talked to Eric Flint and Dave Freer this time about the fourth entry in the Witches of Carries series, The Shaman of Carries. This is Eric Flint and Dave Freer's continuation of the James Schmidt series, with Mercedes Lackey contributing to the first sequel as well. This book is a real finale sort of tale, with lots of the various storylines wrapping up, and the Lewitt, who has been just a wee manipulator of the laws of space and time in the first books, coming into her own in The Shaman of Carries. The book also features a horrifying take on space slavery, where the slaves are chemically manipulated to be utterly devoted to their oppressors. Plus, there's lots of cool SF wonder-inducing ideas, especially with the xenobiology in the book, because Dave Freer was, for many years, a biologist specializing in marine animals, and he comes up with some cool stuff. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now, here's the news. The May hardcovers and original trade paperbacks have entered the chute and are aching to stampede away, so grab your lassos, readers, and get ready to rope those steers. Out in May is The Shaman of Carries by Eric Flint and Dave Freer. Starship Captain Possert and the Witches of Carries must deal with a slaver culture that makes slaves feel happy to be in chains, and the youngest of the witches, the Lewitt, begins to awaken to her full powers as a healer. We'll talk with Dave and Eric about that much more in just a moment. Also out now is Penrick's Travel by Lois McMaster Bujol. Footloose nobleman Penrick grows wiser and even more wily as he journeys from young lord to sorcerer and scholar in the bastard's order. Oh, and he deals with intrigue and solves mysteries along the way as well. Three stories of epic fantasy from the new Cephwa Grandmaster, Lois McMaster Bujold. It includes Penrick's mission, Mira's Last Dance in the Prisoner of Lemnos. We talked to Lois about this back in February when the first collection of these novellas came out, and this is the second three of those that will complete the issuing of these novellas in book form. And finally out in May is The Eleventh Gate by Nancy Crest. When war breaks out between the city-states of the eight worlds, the key to victory and peace lies with two unlikely allies. Through the eleventh star jump gate, at the end of which lies a planet of danger and mystery. The Eleventh Gate by Nancy Crest. Penrick's Travels by Lois McMaster Bujold and The Shaman of Carries by Eric Flint and Dave Freer are now at booksellers everywhere or will be next Tuesday. Get them, read them, and have a wonderful blooming May of fantasy and science fiction excellence.
want to welcome Eric Flint and Dave Freer back to the podcast. Hello, guys. Thank you so much for, for showing up. Hi. Good day. Eric Flint is a modern master of alternate history fiction with over 3 million books in print. He's the author creator of the multiple New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire series starting with 1632 and he's written popular novels in the Belisarius series and with David Weber uh, who's collaborated on both some 1632 Ring of Fire books and uh, Eric has collaborated on that that great Honorverse subseries uh Crown of Slaves, including Cauldron of Ghosts. That was the last one. Um, Eric's latest Ring of Fire novel is what? It's not Polish Maelstrom. Uh, yeah, it is. It is? It's six, well, well, no, no, I'm sorry. Uh, in the 1632 series? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. well, the next, yeah, Polish Maelstrom is the last one that I'm trying to say. 1630. The, came out. the yeah. next one coming out. No, wait a minute. That one uh, with China Walt. Adventure came out after that, yeah. yeah. Um, 1636 and China Adventure, I believe, is the last one that's been published. There's another one coming out in August and another one in November. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Eric was for many years a labor union activist, and he lives in Chicago, Illinois. Dave Freer is an ichthyologist turned author who lives on Flinders Island uh, between mainland Australia and Tasmania. Uh, with his wife, four dogs, and four cats. Um, are your sons still living there? Or are they? Uh, they one's in Cambridge, UK, and the other one is in um, South Australia. Yeah. So he's he's out there with the fish and his wife. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Co-authored a range of novels with Eric Flint, uh, like the Rats, Bats, and Vats uh, series, Pyramid Scheme uh, series. I'm not sure what the series is called. And a wonderful book called Slow Train to Arcturus, which is, I think that's a one-off, right? It's this cool... Yeah, yeah. yeah, that wasn't part of the series. Yeah, it's, it's like a David cool... and I have done, I believe, I think Shaman of Carries marks the 11th book we've done together, uh, including a few we did, also did with Misty Lackey. Yeah. I think that's what it is. Yeah, you've done the Shadow of the Lion, This Rough Magic, those, the Heirs of Alexander series, and then uh, you and David done the Wizard of Kerry series, um, which this is the third of, right? It's uh, the third sequel, yeah. There's the four third. all told if you include Witches of Kerry. Yeah, which is... And the next one uh, was Wizard of Kerry's, which we did with Misty Lackey, and then the last two... Um, Sorcerer of Carries and, and Shaman of Carries, which is just coming out, Dave and I did, did just a two Right. And David's solo works in, include Dragon's Ring and uh, Dog and Dragon, really cool fantasy novels, and Changeling's Island, which is a really cool young adult novel that people really should check out. I think it's a wonderful book set on Flinders Island. Um, so yeah, that one got to be um, a finalist in in two categories in the Dragon Awards. Yeah, and uh, right now out at booksellers everywhere is um, the Shaman of Carries or the Shaman of Carries, however you want to say it, uh, by Eric Flint and Dave Freer, and uh, this is this is the third book in the series that you and. You, you two and Misty Lackey wrote the first one, then you wrote next two, but the first one was written not by any of you, right? It was um, a book that uh, you had... Written by James Schmitz, uh, 
Uh, in the late 60s, so it's been 50 years ago. Yeah. So what, what did you admire so much about that, and why are you writing sequels to it? Give us some background on this. Well, I've been a, a, a really big James A. Schmitz fan since I was a kid. Um, and um, I uh, talked Jim Bain into reissuing uh, his works. He died in 1981, so he's been gone a long time. Um, and Jim agreed to do uh, four volumes initially, which were all the uh, stories set in the Federation of the Hop, which was Schmitz's sort of main common setting he used for a lot of his stories. And then um, those sales went well, so we completed his all of his work. It took another three volumes, of which the third and last was Wizard of Carries, which Jim was twitchy about publishing Wizard of Carries because he'd done the last reissue of it uh, shortly after Bane Books had been established, and it pretty well tanked. So, but when we reissued it, it sold quite well. I think the reason that his reissue tanked was just because it was it just wasn't long enough after Schmitz had died. You know, you got to let a certain amount of time go by let the nostalgia build up, so to speak. But uh, Witcher Carey is just a wonderful story. It's uh, It was his longest novel, um, and he only wrote four novels. And, and actually, Witches of Carey, it, 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 it successfully passed itself off as a novel, but what it really was was three novelettes and a novella sort of, you know, braided together. Um, if you actually look at it, it's a, they're all separate adventures. You could remove any one of them and the book would still hold together. Um, and I remember reading when I was a teenager, and I loved the book. And uh, when we got the rights to Schmitz's estate, one of the things we got was a right to, uh, to write um, work set in any of his universes. So we decided we would... Uh, you know, do a sequel to uh, Witch of the Carries, which is uh, the Wizard of Carries, which Dave and I did with Mercedes Lackey. And uh, that did quite well, and so uh, Dave, uh, Misty peeled off at that point, but Dave and I did the next one, Sorcerer of Carries, which also did well. And we'll see how Shaman does. Um, the Part of the reason we wanted to do Shaman was because there's a sort of necessary story arc if you go beyond the first book and start writing sequels then you face a major dramatic problem or issue which is that the, the heart of the story is the relationship between Captain Pousert and, and, and Goth and that's tricky because when they meet He's in his mid-twenties and Goth is 10 years old and she sort of immediately announces she's going to marry him when she gets old enough. Well, Schmitz ended the book right about, you know, when they're both at that age and that was the end of it. But if you're going to keep going with the story, which Dave and I did, then you've got the awkward problem that at the very center of it is what amounts to a romance between an adult male and a 10 year old girl which is um, tricky <laughs> to put it mildly uh, and I think we successfully pulled it off but we needed to get through Shaman and Carrie in order to do it uh, 
And and I don't know, Dave, do you agree with me? Yeah, um, I thought that the using a bit of time travel in what was it Wizard, yeah, uh, so that we got Goth to actually deal with a younger Porsid. Yeah, yeah, that um, was that was a nice actually help help to shift the characters around a bit. Yeah, yeah, that was Dave's idea, and it worked very very well uh, because it yeah it, it enabled us to sort of have them meet each other when they're about the same age. And then, although Captain Pouser doesn't at the time realize who she is, and he doesn't realize who she is later when he counts her. But yeah, it's a, it's a nice, uh, that, that's done in Sorcerer's for Curious a Surf book. Yeah. Um, so, and, yeah. Go ahead. So, uh, basically this is, so you, you needed to do a little time travel to make sure that we didn't have a pederasty subplot. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, you've got a very awkward problem there. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but what it is, is a story about a, a, a spaceship captain, a starship captain, and these three girls who are now becoming young women in Shaman of Carries, and they have... Um, special powers in this this galactic and it, it's so it's it's also it feels so andre norton to me as well in, in a way it's got a cost it's got a same kind of feel to it yeah. yeah and they have they have sort of uh psionic uh powers of and or the powers that are super science um and this guy needs to protect them and at the same time they're extremely powerful beings um can you sort of explain the 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 milieu and the background and how the it's not magic uh how the katha and the and all the other the way schmitz himself described the book he wrote the witches of carries the foundation novel he described it as science fantasy um it, it is officially science fiction um uh, because it claims to be but the the class of powers as they're called are I'm not actually even sure how you pronounce that. Uh, could I suppose you pronounce uh, I don't know. I pronounce it Klotha. Um Is it, it's supposedly some kind of, of uh, uh, geez, Dave, I don't know what you call it. it. In practice, it's like magic, but officially it's not. It's it's some natural force in the universe. Yeah, I'm, um, I, I always took it as, as kind of, um, being able to interact with other dimensions and therefore draw various things from them rather than um, so much as magic or... But it definitely has elements of the whole side. It's, it's a little bit um, like the Force in the Star Wars universe, you know. It's yeah. like, what, what the hell is the Force, you know? Well, we're just not going to worry too much about that and we'll just take it as it is. It's great space opera. Yeah, but each each of the girls has a different talent. What are those talents? Who are the girls, and what are those talents? We maybe start with the the Lewitt. Well, she's she's the main character for the last book, so I think we should probably start with Goth. Yes, who's um, a who can teleport things, and who can also read histories of the past by touching things so yeah um strong emotions uh so leave an impression 
on solid objects. You know, the, this house feels like it's got a history, etc. You know, that that feeling. Well, that was a play on that. Um, the Lewitt's abilities seem very limited in the first well, wait, book. Wait, She's just back up. You forgot one, which is Goth also can manipulate light, so she can effectively make oh, herself cool. invisible for a period of time, or she can make herself appear to be someone else. Or she can actually split the light into yeah. four people, which is quite useful at times. Um, yeah, and then uh, the Leewitt's first abilities in the first book is she has these ultrasonic whistles which can break things at you know audible range and that kind of thing. This gradually develops throughout the books um, and her ability then turns out to be a healing ability where she can actually touch the patient and reach into them and explore them at a cellular level and treat things. But of course, she's still a young girl. And I mean, you know, medicine is pretty hard on anybody who's quite a lot older than that. And she's having to deal with that, um, the enormous power that that potentially gives her both you know, to, to cure people and also possibly to kill them. The third sister's off doing something in this uh, in this book, That's right? That's Moline. Yeah, you know, I honestly don't even remember what her power was because she only really appears and then just briefly in the very first book, Witches of Carries. Um, Goth, uh, Goth, Captain Pousard rescues the three witches. They're all sisters in the mm -hmm. first book early on, and Moline is the oldest of them. But she peels away very, very quickly and really plays no further part. You know, she's referred to occasionally, but yeah. she plays no further part in the story. It's really the two younger sisters, Gotham and uh, the Leewood, who are at the center of the story, uh, along with Captain Pouser. Those are the three central characters. Yeah. There are other, you know, prominent characters like Hulito Aldo and some others, but the three central characters to the series are Captain Pouser and the two younger of the uh, sisters, uh, Goth is the middle sister, and Leewood is the youngest. Yeah. Now the Leo, the Lewitt, um is um, her her power seems less at first, but it really is the more powerful of the two. Her this ability to heal and to really reach inside, understand uh, processes, and 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 she can even like read resonances from material, right, and figure out a history of something. Well, now that's Goth. Oh, is that that's Goth, Goth yeah, okay. is the one who can do that. Um, uh, she can basically just put her hand, touch some, you know, surface like the wall of a room, and uh, and she can if there's if there's a history there, especially if it's an unpleasant history, um, she can uh, detect it, so yeah. to speak, and understand at least some of what happened. And Goth can also just like she can teleport a gun out of your hand. And have it in her hand, if if you're threatening. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure. She, there's a weight restriction. I, Dave, is she capable yeah. of teleporting? There's, a, there's definitely a weight and a range restriction. As she's got better at right at the end of the final book, she actually manages to teleport whole people. Um, her father, in in the 
earlier books um, shows his ability. So it's kind of a developmental thing. And it seems to be um, the way Schmitz wrote it, to be a stepwise thing. So you go from low ability to making quite a big step up and so on, um, instead of a gradual progression. We should also mention that Captain Pouser is also turns out to be a witch who carries, although it, you know that takes the whole first book to develop. But um, by the end of the first book, it turns out he also has the ability to manipulate some cloth of powers, and that power of his develops in the course of the series. Yeah, and um, it plays a, a big part in this book. Um, yeah, it, so by the time you get to the, the Shaman and Curry, which is the fourth book, he's uh, he's quite a powerful uh, witch in his own right. Yeah. So what does it mean to be a witch? Here's the all right. There's this entire planet uh, of people, and it is that have powers like this. Um, and it struck me. It feels like something like Isaac Asimov's Foundation. You know, the second Foundation. The, the they are trying to influence things in this shaky galactic empire and trying to make a better world emerge or something like that. Can you explain a little bit about uh, the backstory of all this? Go ahead, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of an easy way out of this one. Um, you know, I, I drew my inspiration from for this from Schmitz's other work where he has this whole overarching um, organizational type thing trying to foster the survival of humanity for starters. That's that's a big theme in, in all of the Courier's books is that they're do, dealing with things which could potentially go very, very badly for everybody. Um, in the last one in particular, um, we're dealing with humanity being its own enemy as well as um, other things. The, the Courier's witches do not, generally speaking, micromanage in any way. Um, they do have uh, precogs, so they can predict which way the future might go unless some form of inter intervention takes place. Um, they don't usually know exactly how that's going to work out once you start changing things. Um, and their whole attitude generally is, well, let them get on with it. But every now and again, there's a point when you can't just let them get on with it. Would that be a fair take, Eric? They, yeah, they are, the origins of Carrie's is never, it's always awfully vague in, in Schmitz. Uh, they did originate from Earth um, way, way back when. Um, where exactly the class of powers came from, nobody really knows, although it does have a strong genetic component. Uh, and they created their own planet of Carrie's, which they can actually move. Uh, using their powers. It takes a whole lot of working together, but they can move the planet, so the planet moves around. It's, um, and it, it's hard to describe. It's kind of like this... You can think of the planet carries and its inhabitants as this kind of cross between uh, a sort of private eye who's going around straightening out problems 
sort of version of Hogwarts, only it's mostly teachers instead of students, but they're constantly getting involved in 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 brawls with with wicked and evil forces in the universe, of which there are quite a few. Um, the political background is um, it's quite different from from the uh, Federation of the Hub, which is the main setting that Schmidt's created, and he did over half his work in that setting. In the Carey's universe, there is a one big empire in it, um, and Carey has good relations with uh, one of the princesses. Uh, and there are, you know, cannibal pirates, and there's an evil, immensely evil power from, from another universe, that's Melander. Uh, it, or he, is, is the chief villain in the first book, The Witches of Carries. Uh, uh, it's a very rich background he created, but it's, it's easy to work with because it's, uh, he just kind of put it together as he went. I mean, there, there's no, uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of, there's kind of a lot of elbow room to work in that universe, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I mean the empire is definitely defined as. Yeah, I mean the empire is definitely defined as, um, mostly good, <laughs> you know, but uh, that was only compared to the chaos that went before it, um, which Schmidt sort of brings up a, a little bit of. Um, yeah, it, it's a. A very complicated series of books now um, that you're asking us to describe in very few words. <laughs> yeah. So um, at the beginning of the book, Possert and the Lewitt get sent out on a mission, on a, on a mission that they're not exactly sure what the mission is. They're told, um, a, they to, they're told an assignment. At the same time, Goth, who is Possert's love interest, and as he is hers, um, she's sent out in another direction. Um what are what what are the initial assignments here, and and why were they sent? Well, um, part of the whole point of of separating the two there was to work on the relationship between the two of them, you know, um, and to get them to to square up where they stood as far as the other person was concerned. Um, and Goth's mission is is to find Porset's mother, which um, they know if Porset was told that his mother was in potential strife, um, he would leave his mission and go off and do that. Um, Porset's mission is um, to stop a war. Uh, so he says, oh, well, I'm to intervene on this side because the other guys are real bad slavers. And the peacocks have to say, well, um, no. He says, oh, well, I'm to intervene on the slavers' side. And the peacocks have to say, um, no, we don't know what you have to do. Um, but neither side winning would be a good thing. So yeah, it's um, a story which develops about about um, a set of people who, who have a particularly nasty way of enslaving 
people in that they uh, make the slave utterly so devoted to its master by changing the biochemistry and um, mental reaction to the smell of the master that the slave absolutely adores the master, will do anything for them, would literally die for their master and be happy doing it. But they are then sold to various clients, which uh, the terrifying take on slavery where the slave itself is, is not unhappy being a slave once it is made into a slave. Um, and it raises all sorts of questions about, yeah, what, what does it mean? What, what is slavery? Um, how do you free somebody from this? And when you do free them, they're actually desperately unhappy because they've been freed. You have to play around with that one quite a bit. Yeah. But if they, before they get put into this slavery, they they certainly don't want to go into it. That's for oh, sure. No, they certainly don't want to go into it. <laughs> Some people fighting um, against that. You know, um, it's not something you volunteer for. You are captured and taken and forced to become. But once you've actually been enslaved, there's really no easy way out of it. Um, you can't just go and liberate the guy because he's actually terribly happy being a slave. Yeah. Well, I must say, of course, we will not give out the ending, but uh, you do come up with a wonderful twist on, on a possible... <laughs> solution to that that I didn't even somebody a drug and they would be addicted to being a slave and, and would enjoy it um, and uh, it's not exactly a drug it, it kind of works that way but um, yeah it, it's tricky because the, the what what Pazler discovers is that the slavers would seem to be the obvious villains, and they are, but uh, the problem is their opponents are religious fanatics, and they're not... <laughs> Why, they're barely the lesser of two evils, and what the precogs say is they're actually the worse uh, if it goes continues on. It's a tricky situation. Um, and meanwhile, Gossoff having her own adventures, um, which dramatically, we, we did the same thing in the third book. It, 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 dramatically, it was important to separate her from Pouser and have them go their separate ways because if you had them just sticking together constantly, which is what happens in the original book, which is a carries, and happens in the first sequel, Wizard of Carries, but... You know, given this awkward issue of the romance between, you know, an adult and, and you know, a, a child, you, you have to kind of separate them uh, in order to have that work out properly, um, which we did in the third book and we did again in this book. Yeah. Um, well, before uh, Pauser gets to do anything, he uh, he and Thelewitt, uh come across a... Uh, some some pirates who are slavers. Um, yeah. How how does that go, and how do they end up on this place called Cinderby's World, and what the heck is this world? Large part of the book takes place there. 
task. <laughs> so uh, this this world was, was Dave being a biologist again and trying to work out uh, a reasonable way of, of making oxygen and tying the thread of, of where this um, ability to, to enslave people came from. And Sindhubi's uh, world is, is the cone, the end of the cone of worlds which this earlier alien power had developed. Sindhubi's um, world is yeah. really a way of, of imitating Curry's original things where, where you have several minor short stories woven into um, a major novel. So I'm going to leave it at that for, for right now. Yeah. Well, talk a little bit uh, about the, the ecosystem you came up because it's really kind of fascinating. So there's um, these big things that will lay down on top of you and <laughs> kill you. The uh, sheeters, yeah. And um, there's these little things that they're actually all at. The, the colonists there follow them around and, and Basically, this is yeah. the, the oxygen exchange thing that all the spaceships use, right? That's right. Yeah, um, and it's it's a, a basically a, a chemical catalyst which acts on um, what you're doing effectively is collecting the eggs from chickens, and the one one lot are dropping the eggs for the other lot to fertilize and and change. They're both the same species. They just don't look the same. And this is actually not that uncommon in biology where you can find um, the two sexes looking vastly different or state life stages looking vastly different. Um, you know you know that I'm a very keen diver. Uh, Eric keeps talking about me molesting crayfish or spiny lobster <laughs> down in holes that are 30 meters under the water and things like that, which is... True enough, but I, I kind of use them as a as a model for this because if you look at the younger version of the uh, spiny lobster, it goes through about five or six instars, and the early ones look nothing at all like the later ones, and they have to go through certain developmental changes to um, get to the end of the sequence, which is why we've never really up to now managed to um, grow them artificially because each of these things is so different and requires such different food um, in the size range and type and things like that. But you know, synthesizing has been a real problem. Um, in this case, I actually kept it simple and only had two um, particular life form shapes. But they are essentially the same animal, but the one actually travels around and collects minerals for its final stage of breeding, etc. And it's this mineral deposition, the eggs, as it were, that the other stage is trying to get to. Um, and the humans are intervening by collecting the eggs. So think of it as a chicken farmer. If you take all the eggs, eventually you run out of chickens. Yeah, yeah, and they're—it's uh, really a cool, uh, a, a cool world. The humans that are working it don't completely understand, you know, what they're doing. Uh, I mean, why? Why would you? When you look at things which look so totally alien to each other, um, 
best simple example I can think of is is um, one of the one of the squids, where for years they thought um, this thing they were finding in there was a squid worm and a parasite. Um, it actually turned out to be the tentacle of the male, which got broken off. Um, but nobody recognized it for what it was. It was a breeding tentacle. So um, it, it even has its own species and things like that. Wow. That is really creepy and cool. We use something sort of similar to it in, uh, in uh, uh, Flow Train to Arcturus, um, where there's a, uh, uh, and the, the aliens are, have a the ones we we worked with were mobile and very much seem like humans, but they actually transform later in life into something very very different. Um, yeah. And so they and, uh, they become essentially sessile. Um, I, I modeled that on some of the fish species, of course, because yeah, I have to be an ichthyologist somewhere down the line, and. The advantages of um, what one male can fertilize one hell of a lot of females, so you don't need a lot of males. Um, so they can be this motile stage which um, moves around and does things and looks rather like humans. And then when they change over, um, they become very large and breed because um, the physiological demands of breeding or consider well of carrying a, a baby or in their case eggs is far higher than um that just producing some sperm so um so Posser never uh, get a biologist started on these things yeah yeah it's well it's fascinating the way you work it into the book is really cool because of course it plays into the story and it, it's just uh super super cool um, ideas that, that, you know, deliver a, a sense of wonder. Um, Possert frees, uh, he attacks these pirates, flee, frees all these people who are bound to be slaves and takes them back to this world. Um, and it's essentially a, it's a, it's a company town and, um, he immediately gets sued. <laughs> Which... <laughs> you don't expect, I, and I, I, <laughs> I'm an ambulance officer on the island here, and uh, some people are very grateful, but every now and again you get people who really get very angry at you because you did your best for them, and they wanted something else. And gratitude doesn't always come with a job. So he needs to get out of there, and um, they're they're keeping him, and and he sort of falls in with some some perhaps underworld types. Um, tell us a little. First of all, maybe tell us about Tazara. Now this this is a uh, it's not it's not a human species, right? This is actually yeah, no, they're pretty human. They're, pretty um, human. they're just tattoo yeah, themselves all over. I, I drew yeah, that from um, and uh, New Zealand Maori culture. Yeah, I was going to say it's it, it, yeah, it's a sort of Maori analog. I see. Closest. So they're really into um, they're really into the honor and the uh, and and when you pledge a, a your word, it's it's everything. It's all 
Um, and this guy uh, has pledged to the Lewitt. Um, where did he come from? And um, and and what? He's pretty deadly as well. Tell us a little bit about him, at least. That's what I mean. Eric, yeah, that goes back to the previous well, book. They, yeah, they live on a planet that's sort of kind of Polynesian in the sense that, that people live on islands. Um, and um, they're, 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 they're very they have a very ferocious culture. It's partly, well, that and the tattoos, but, you know, that's partly what gives it a kind of Maori flavor. It's... Uh, some years ago, uh, actually, Dave and I were, were both in New Zealand at the same time. We were both going to the same science fiction convention. And my wife and I went to New Zealand a week early just to have a vacation. And uh, uh, New Zealand's a fascinating place, and, but I had never known much about the Maori. And, and, but when I got there, I got very interested in the culture and the history of it. And... Uh, um, they were ferocious as all hell. I mean, they, they, they sacked the, the English capital three times. Um, and the thing about the Maori that's sort of striking to me was that they took the gunpowder warfare. And lots of other indigenous peoples adopted firearms, but they didn't really change their way of fighting wars they just sort of swapped out weapons but the maoris just boy they really loved it and they, i mean you know they invented trench warfare landmines i mean um they very nearly licked the british empire yeah i mean they um there are some seriously ferocious people um uh, and so the, the, there's a certain Maori, definitely Maori flavor to the culture that that, to that comes from. Uh, and then some of the stuff, of course, we invented. Just, you know, um, hmm. some of the specifics aren't particularly Maori. I, I might but, say uh, my, my dive partner is is um, Maori. So um, I spent a lot of time with the guy. And this is the guy that um, I was on the bottom of the... See, he'd gone up with it with a bag of craze, and I was marking the place, and I was shooting fish while I was down there. Probably about 15 meters down, right? So, yeah, uh, 45 feet or so. And um, a shark came up and started circling me. So kind of I'm pressing as flat as I can on the bottom, swimming back towards the boat. Um, it obviously wants the fish that I've got, but it might just not stop at the fish. Um, and I've got my little hand spear there. You know, uh, I'm a bit of a traditionalist. I, I spear things by hand. Um, and I'm this thing circling me and I'm trying to keep facing it. And eventually it starts getting a bit closer and I poke it on the nose. Um, and it rolls back its gums and I can see all the teeth and, and I'm really getting scared. And my mate jumps over the side of the boat and swims down to me. Now that's typif typifies the type of people you're dealing with um, and a level of commitment to one's uh, friends and, and partners and whatever that, yeah, 
just quite freaky. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's really cool. Um, to, uh, to and and Tazara is is that kind of uh, character. It's, yeah. He's just fun to be around. Loyalty when it's given, you know. And, and he's smart. He will, yeah, he's smart and tough, but um, absolutely and finally loyal when when the loyalty is given to you. So they, they what they they got to get back to the ship basically and get out of there. Um, uh, and they meet this character named Mia. Um, tell us about her because she's she's kind of cool too. And and the Lewitt is able to to help her, um, which is a a key that opens really the rest of the book. Yeah, she's got a nasty degenerative disease and has compensated for the the pain and and um, fact that she. She comes from the same cultures as um, Tazara, which is a very physical military type culture. And there she is without legs. And she's made up for this by being absolutely scheming, absolutely conniving, and very powerfully manipulative and completely deadly, although she's confined to a, a wheelchair. Um, and. Uh, Dealing with this degenerative disease starts to put some of the pieces of the puzzle that start on that world um, and deal with where the slavers get the, the power to do this to their slaves and the various alien creatures that got left behind by um, the an earlier empire. What is the, um, what's the thing that the benefactor that one of these, uh, is it, they're from the planet Kakalof, or I believe that's what their race is called, the Tazara and Mia. Um, what is it that, it, it needs, the relationship needs to go both ways. And the Lewitt, when she understands that, is able to make it go both ways um, later in the book. What what do the benefactors of who are receiving the service from these characters, uh, what do they owe them? I just thought it was really cool the way that the... That I was going to say, I mean, this is definitely always a two-way relationship. And the more the more you put into it, the more you get out of it, basically. Um, loyal, the, the idea of a loyal servitor being loyal just because he's loyal uh, has always kind of freaked me out. I mean, um, loyalty has to go both ways. And um, the Lewitt gradually works out how the whole honor system of, of the, the clan works. And, you know, manages to bind herself into them. There's also a, um, a really important dramatic, um, <laughs> see, it, 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 there was, there's actually two dramatic tasks we had to accomplish in this book. One of them centers on Gossip Houser and Goss, who have all through the series from the very first book been at the center of it. But as the series progressed, the Leewit becomes more and more important. 
uh, as you go along. Right? In the very first book, The Witches of Carries, uh, she's a very important but definitely very secondary character. Uh, and she's about, I don't know, what would you say, Dave, eight years old in, in Witches of Carries? Yeah. yeah, about two years younger than, than God. And one of the things we needed to do by the end of the fourth book was, in addition to resolving the relationship between Pouser and God, by that point, you couldn't just leave Leewitz sitting there. I mean, you know, I mean, she's at an age where, so we worked out where by the end of it, she's on her own. Um, and is, is not quite an adult, but is close enough to it that she can go off and, 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 and do her own thing, which is what witches of carries do. But part of the reason she can do it is that she's assembled around her this team, so to speak, because Mia is now with her and so is Tazara. So she's, and, uh, and, and Vezarn is a spacer who's been there forever since the beginning. So, you know, one of the things we were able to do in the course of Shaman of Carries was, was give the Leewood the sort of backing she needed, you know, to be able at the end to go off and have whatever adventures she would wind up having afterwards. So that resolves that. Otherwise, we would have had a kind of loose, big, major loose end hanging out there, which we don't now. There's a resolution to her story arc. Just like and it's uh, it's kind of a come. I mean, the novel is really kind of a coming of in a coming of age story of the Lewitt. That's the yes, yeah. the big yes, yeah, it is very much so. Yeah. So yeah, I think in a way we we took all of the major characters, and although they all occur in all of the books, but each one of them is is centered on the next character. I mean, Wizard of Cores obviously is on on Porset himself. Sorceress is um, Goth really coming to her. Own, or starting to come to her own, and um, Shaman is, is really about the Leewood. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, it's not like Gotham Pouser aren't central <laughs> to the book Well, let's, let's talk about what Goth is up to, because that's a, a major subplot, um, and it's kind of cool the way that, um, just kind of take her up to finding maybe uh, where Lenny is, um, and, and what she does to the people who would take her prisoner and make her a slave <laughs> she, does, she doesn't take it lying down no. goth doesn't take much lying down <laughs> and, and, and she's the, the less impulsive of the two Porset tends to destroy things if he has drugs what? yeah it's um in a very first book Schmitz uh, makes the point at some point in the book, and something Pouser realizes that, that that of the three sisters, Goth is the real witch of Gary's, uh, more so than her older or younger sister. There's something very witchy about Goth, um, and um, she doesn't look like the other two sisters. Um, she she actually is looks more like her mother, uh, tall. Um, who's a very powerful witch in her own right. Um, and she was quite prominent, of course, in the third book, too, Sorcerer Carries. But um, uh, 
and this way she's completely on her own for, for oh God, what would you say, Dave? Two thirds of a book a week. Um, yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, uh, and, and, you know, she's still very young. I mean, she's, she's, we don't specify the age exactly. I mean, she's still a teenager, but she's in late teenager by now. Um, but she's nobody to mess with, that's for damn sure. Um, and, and the Leewood's not really, she has a very different personality. I mean, especially by the end of this book, she's very much a healer. Um, uh, and she has real powers, too, but um, it's not the same as, as um, I don't know, both temperamentally in terms of what God yeah. can do, she sort of... Uh, well, she she basically starts, uh, She she these people have captured her and another girl and they're going to sell her to as a slave um and she some of the things she's able to do that she may do uh, we don't want to give too much away but this is really toward the beginning um she's able to go into this form called what is it called no substance the she, uh, she, yeah. Yeah. this is the whole bit about bending light around yourself etc yeah and so she, um, she can really scare the hell out of these pirates who have, or, or these. Uh, yeah, she she says she in the end um, deals with them much as they intended to deal with her, which I think is is enough of a spoiler for the <laughs> book. And she, um, uh, they, they when, were there. When she gets to, to actually, there's quite a lot of that in in the whole book now. It strikes me, is that very often. Retribution is precisely what the other person intended to do to the the first character. Yeah, it's a dare I? I mean, it's a it's an adventure, us and it it. This is the reason I say it feels like Andre Norton too, because that's what happens in a lot of her books. You get the bad guys get exactly what they were trying to do to others. <laughs> But yeah, well, we'll see. <laughs> anyway, it's 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 cool. I mean, I know that Eric is a great lover of Schmidt, so that we won't do too much comparison of, what? of James James Schmidt. James Schmidt. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, I was also a big fan of Andre Norton. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, there's a there is quite a bit of similarity between the two of them in terms of the kind of adventure. There's a different flavor to them which is almost impossible to describe. It's just, you know, different authors have different flavors to them, so to speak. But, um, but yeah, they're, um, I don't know how to put it. They, they have a certain kind of, a lot of their novels have a certain sort of touch of young adult, but they're not young adult. Um, but there's, um, I don't know. They're, they're, I remember, I, Grew up on Bo Schmitz and Andre Norton. Uh, yeah. uh, I, I yeah, discovered so Norton I mean, actually earlier those, on. Those uh, are two of my favorite authors. So yeah, it, it's quite possible there's a bit of influence there. <laughs> right. um, well, if you like those, you'll certainly like this. Um, one other thing I wanted to bring up is the very cool. Uh, what is it called? Eggers, the, Eggers way. The the ability. Eggers, oh yeah. yeah. Eggers route. Yeah. And that's that's definitely extra-dimensional travel. Refuse to, to call it anything else. 
Sure. Which is Goss' ability to, if it, if things get too bad, she can pull the plug in a way. But she'll also yeah, pulling the plug can kill you. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a, it's... And this seems the ego way seems to be something that all the Kares witches can do, but each of them experiences it slightly differently. Um, and none of them are enjoy doing it very much because it's a, a fairly unpleasant experience. But the one thing that seems always seemed to be in common with it was a huge amount of vibration, which is yeah, interesting in itself. Yeah, it's a, it, I mean, it's teleportation that takes you to another planet or another place. In a way, except teleportation is usually considered to be instantaneous, and the egg route is not instantaneous, although exactly how much time it takes is, is never very clear. Uh, well, Schmitz is the one who developed it. It's, it appears at the very beginning, and which is not at the beginning of the book, but in the course of the witches appearing. Um, so we didn't, I mean, we just stayed and the the leeward, uh keeps being threatened with being made to swim home by the ego way. <laughs> well, it's the, it's the kind of thing that seems like an out, but it's not really because it it's just going to make things um, more difficult. Well, it's an out, but it's also a it's unpleasant and b it's dangerous. Yeah. Um, you know, so I mean, it's not like a magic. Especially when it uses it, gets out of the other side. But that is another cool conundrum that, like the book has with the slaves. Um, this is, you know, you can, you can jump out of whatever you're in, but it's, uh, it, it can make things far yeah, worse. Bigger, bigger root seems to only really effectively work one way. Yeah. You have to be to wherever you're going to. So you can't jump to some place you've never been. Which is the reason that Goth uh, knows Posser yeah. so well. That's where she would go. Yeah. So that's cool. Well, yeah, and the ship so well, etc. Yeah. What else can we say about the book? Uh, you know, without giving too much away, that uh, that we maybe haven't mentioned. Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you one thing about the book that that um, <laughs> inspired me in the first place was um, cats, because um, the relationship uh, of some of, a lot of the alien behavior is in fa fact based on the way um, cats manipulate their owners, and you're never entirely sure how much the cat really appreciates this, but it certainly gets its owner to do everything that it wants. So it's always a question of who the slave is in that relationship. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So uh, what are you guys working on, um, Eric? What's going on? In... Well, Dave and I together are not, don't, are not working on anything right now. Um, what I'm working on is a, media, it's a number of projects, but the one that's at the center of everything I'm doing right now is I'm working with David Weber to write the next uh, novel set in, in David's Honor Harrington universe. And the book is has the working title of Cloak of Evil, which neither David or I like, so the title will change by the time the book comes out. But 
it's the direct sequel to Cauldron of Ghosts, which we wrote together, but it also carries on some of, it's a partial sequel, at least to the last Harrington book that Dave himself wrote, David wrote, which uh, uncompromising on it. Yeah, so it picks up some of those threads. That's what I'm working on right now. And after that, I've got a couple of projects I've got to finish up, and then the next major book I'll be writing is the third book in the Trail of Glory series, the Sam Houston, Walter, and History books. I'll be starting those later this year. Uh, and other than that, I'm just doing a, I do a lot of collaborative writing, so it's not as if my co-authors aren't, you know, keeping me busy. At this point, most of them um, are now doing the first drafts, and then I follow on behind them, or sometimes we set aside parts that we're going to do. Uh, the last book, Dave wrote, I mean, really, the Shaman of Terry's David, Dave wrote it. Uh, it was, you know, stuff we've been working together on for years. But really, it's, it's, it's of all the books in the series, this is really uh, very much his. Because um, I, I mean, I came after, he sent me the manuscript, and then I did a fair amount of editing and some rewriting and so on and so forth. But it's, it's, uh, the last book David and I did to get a play, uh, All the Plagues of Hell, uh, but he was not able for various reasons to finish the book, so he sent me, you know, most of it, but I wrote the ending, and then, uh, which was a number of chapters, then went back and did some rewriting earlier on. So I don't know, we, um, the one thing that, that is, we have talked about doing, but we just haven't done it, is, um, uh, and, and um, is a, a, another of the Pyramid books. Uh, there are two. Pyramid Scheme, the original book, uh, which is set in Greek and uh, Egyptian mythology, and then uh, Pyramid Power, which is set in Norse mythology, and then we have kicked around, although we haven't done anything in some years, uh, doing a third book, which would be uh, uh, Celtic mythology. Um but, you know, it's not as if we're both not busy, so I don't know when we'll get around to that. Well, um, I hope you do. Yeah. And the only as thing far as the Carrie's series go, about. we could write another Carrie's book. I mean, that, you could always imagine. I'm not sure we're going to, though, because yeah, I'm, this I'm does not, really not complete a story of Carrie's books. Um, what, what I have suggested to you before, Eric, was... Um, that we looked at, at a sequel to Demon Breed, Schmitz's... Oh, that um, would be, yeah, that that would be a lot of fun, actually, because I love that book. That's, if there was any one yeah. single Schmitz story... That's that probably my favorite one, yeah. It's the Demon Breed, uh, which is a short novel. It's about 50,000 words. That, you know, at the time he wrote it, that was considered novel length. It's not any longer, but it's an absolutely wonderful... Um, story and it's set in the Federation of the Hub setting, which is another very interesting. Yeah, that would be actually very. Um, that would be fun to write. Um, yeah, and and it's got quite a lot of marine brain. stuff and a lot of biology. So uh -huh. yeah, sort of in my my ballpark. Oh yeah, because yeah. that's set on a water world, and uh, I've just completed. Uh, a trilogy set on a water world with Reich Spore um, that just came out, in fact, last month, or this, yeah, last month, in March, um, 
Castaway Resolution. That was the third and last of the trilogy, and that's also set on a water world. Water worlds are really interesting. They're weird. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. And the one that Schmitz created, uh, Nandy Klein, which is where uh, the adventure of the demon breed takes place, is uh, really got an interesting ecology yeah. and biology to it. Uh, well, Dave, what are you working on? You got any solo work coming up? Yeah, I'm, I'm. Well, I've been busy moving and building a house for most of the last year, um, which took up a lot more of my time and energy than I anticipated when I started. If I had any idea what I was doing, then I would never have started it. Hmm. Uh, but I've been working on a couple of books at the moment. Um, one of them is a, another young adult novel, which is called And How Much for the Crazy, Just the Crazy Uncle, um, which has a, a, a premise of, of two kids deciding to, to put up an advert to sell their family on, on uh, what's your American equivalent of Gumtree, um, Craigslist. And the unpleasant responses of people who just want to buy the crazy uncle. Uh, and the other one that I'm working on is is set on a planet which has no solid air, uh, no solid ground at all, but it has a habitable zone out in the exosphere. So it's a gas giant, and if you get high up enough. Um, you can actually breathe the atmosphere and there's water and oxygen to be had. Um, and any planet like that has this minor problem. There's nothing to stand on. So uh, there is an anti-gravity trading plate on this thing where two hostile empires once met. Now the hostile empires died mysteriously, but their relics still live on on the trading plate and in their little um, cloud castles, which are showpieces of the very wealthy drifting around this vast gas giant planet, um, onto which I crash landed a, a lot load of humans um, who were heading for a prison colony planet. So um, we, we've got an interesting mixture of Australia and um, yeah, miles and miles and miles and miles and miles of nothing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I decided I, I would add a do-gooder into that who just sets out to uplift the poor people. Wow. I'm like, deeply uh, impressed uh, with the idea. It was like uh, uh, Australia collides with Rendezvous with Rama. But... <laughs> it sounds, sounds about right, yeah. <laughs> well, that sounds cool. you have a title for it yet, or are you? Uh, at the moment, it's got a working title of Cloud Castles, but uh, who knows? Well, that sounds cool. Well, well, out now at booksellers everywhere is The Shaman of Carries by Eric Flint and Dave Freer. Uh, Eric and Dave, thank you so much for talking with us about um, this really uh, uh, fun adventure um, book with a, with a lot of really cool science fiction and sense of wonder to it. My pleasure. Okay.
Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Office of the Second Space Lord. Admiralty House, City of Landing, Manticore, Star Empire of Manticore. Sorry it took me so long, Pat, Hamish Alexander Harrington, Earl Whitehaven, and First Lord of Admiralty said, as he followed Commander Terry Lasseline, Admiral Patricia Givens' new chief of staff through Givens' office door. Tobias Stimson, his personal armsman, peeled off outside the door. We were in transit when your message came in, so what's this all about? I assume there's a reason I'm here instead of talking to the select committee where I'm supposed to be? Actually, Hamish, a familiar soprano said from the office's smart wall, I'm the one who's messed up your schedule. Sorry about that. I'm sure you're looking forward to talking to the committee almost as enthusiastically as I'm looking forward to that state dinner tonight. Honor. Whitehaven's incipient frown disappeared as he turned to face the smart wall. If you needed to talk to me, there are simpler ways to do it. I'm aware. His wife shook her head with a certain resignation as Lasseline touched Whitehaven's elbow and pointed at one of the armchairs facing the smart wall. Unfortunately, this call isn't a social occasion. There's something you need to see. Me as in First Lord, I presume? He asked, settling into the indicated chair with a nod of thanks to the commander. Lasseline smiled, then raised an eyebrow at Givens. We're good, Terry, the second space lord said. But grab a seat. You should hear this too. Yes, ma'am. Lasseline found a chair of her own, and Whitehaven turned his attention back to the smart wall. Honor stood at one end of her desk aboard Imperator, and he recognized Mercedes Brigham, her chief of staff, Andrea Jarowalski, her ops officer, and George Reynolds, her intelligence officer, behind her. Captain Rafe Cardonis, Imperator's CO, stood with them, and Whitehaven's eyebrows twitched slightly. That quartet represented the most trusted corps of Honor's staff, and their expressions were a strange mix of eagerness and trepidation? No... That wasn't quite the right word, but it was headed in the right direction. Absolutely. One of our forensic teams pulled something very interesting out of a Solly Super Dreadnought's comm records. It may shed a little light on Filaretta's actions. Of course, she grimaced. I think it probably poses as many new questions as it answers. Wonderful. He shook his head, then glanced at Givens. Seems to work that way more often than not in intelligence matters, doesn't it? 
Givens, who commanded the Office of Naval Intelligence in addition to her other duties, snorted, and he looked back at Honor. Show me, he said simply, and Honor looked at Reynolds. George? Yes, Your Grace. The newly promoted captain faced Whitehaven from the smart wall. My lord, what you're about to see was pulled out of a personal comm exchange between Admiral Filareta's communications officer and the comm officer aboard Leonhard Euler. We've abstracted the relevant material, stripped away the rest of the message, and enhanced what we kept. I'd like to recommend midshipman, I'm sorry, it's Ensign now, Her Grace's authority, Elijah Demas for some well-deserved recognition for spotting it too. I'm not sure it would have popped the filters before we scrubbed and enhanced it. Whitehaven nodded his understanding. We don't have any visual of the critical speakers, Reynolds continued. They were outside the pickup's field of view, but the voice recognition software is 99.9% .9 confident in its IDs. That could be a problem down the road, Hamish, Givens put in, then shrugged when he looked at her. If we go public with this, there are going to be plenty of Sollies ready to point out how convenient for us it is that all we have are disembodied voices. Maybe yes, and maybe no, Pat. Honor's voice drew Givens and Whitehaven's eyes back to her. We've got all the rest of the message with this embedded in it. Anybody who wants to can do her own forensics on it. Not, she grimaced, that anyone in old Chicago's likely to be interested in determining whether or not it's genuine. You're probably right, Whitehaven said. So why don't you go ahead and show it to me? George, Honor said again, and Reynolds nodded. Then he pressed a button, and another voice spoke, against a background the Admiral in Hamish Alexander Harrington recognized only too well. The clipped, disciplined voices of a flag bridge at battle stations. Very well, it said. It sounded flat, wooden, and a caption on the smart wall identified it as Fleet Admiral Massimo Filaretta. Strike our wedges and send the pod self-destruct command, Bill. Whitehaven's eyebrows shot up, and he turned to dart an astonished glance at Givens. The admiral only shook her head and held up an index finger. Yes, sir, another voice said, and the caption identified this one as that of Admiral William Daniels, 11th Fleet's operations officer. I suppose you should go ahead and get Harrington back, Reuben. Filaretta's voice continued, she'll want. There was another sound, one Whitehaven couldn't quite make out. It sounded almost like a muffled cry of protest, then, what the fuck do you think you're do- Filaretta's voice shouted. It cut off in mid-syllable, and Whitehaven's gaze moved from Givens back to Honor. That's all we've got, she said softly. But the time chops a perfect match. Filaretta's last words synchronize exactly with 11th Fleet's pod launch. We've always known the launch order came from Filaretta's flag bridge. The launch codes and sequence confirmed that but nobody on his staff said a word to anyone outside Oppenheimer afterward. Oppenheimer was destroyed in our first wave launch, of course, but time of flight was 160 seconds, so there was ample time for them to have talked to somebody outside the flagship. And I'm particularly struck by how it breaks off so suddenly. Leonhard Euler's comm officer is the only person we know of who was in contact with Filaretta's flag bridge at that moment, and she tried for almost three minutes to reestablish contact while her captain tried to find out what the heck was going on when those missiles launched. She couldn't, and that matches with everything we've heard from all of 11th Fleet's survivors. No one could raise Filaretta's flag bridge. 
I'm inclined to wonder if that's because something happened to it right after they launched. But if that's really Filaretta, it sounds like he did decide to surrender, Whitehaven said. I think that's exactly what he did, Honor said, and her voice was grim, her dark brown eyes cold. I think he understood precisely what we wanted him to understand, that his only option was to surrender. And I think the bastards on the other side of this took precautions to prevent him from doing anything of the sort. You're saying this was another example of that killer nanotech of theirs? It was technically a question, but it didn't sound like one. I'm saying that's exactly what it was, and that the people who planted it on him used me and my people to kill another quarter million Solarian spacers, his wife said harshly. Nobody on Old Terra who wasn't already prepared to believe us will believe a word of it, but we know now. And these people, whoever they are, are running up quite a bill with me. She smiled a hexapuma smile. I'm looking forward to presenting it. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And an ugly fish that propagates by telling bad puns and making the ladyfish groan so much she squeezes her eyes shut and invites him to implant his tentacular finest. Plus, thanks and praise for Eric Flint and Dave Freer, authors of The Shaman of Carries. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.